So, why is it that Jamie Lee Curtis was pushing that yogurt on us like there was no tomorrow? Healthy digestion? Well, we'll find out the science of what's happening below the belt next, right here on Discovery Radio on WMSE. Good day, Southeast Wisconsin. I'm David Todd, your host for the next half hour of Discovery Radio here on WMSE. Well, I hope by now you're asking yourself, what is Discovery Radio? I thought you'd never ask. Discovery Radio is the brainchild of Dr. Reza Shakir, Director of the Clinical and Translational Science Institute of Southeast Wisconsin. A mouthful, hey. That's why we call it CTSI. So what is CTSI? That's the cool part. The Clinical and Translational Science Institute of Southeast Wisconsin is a consortium of four leading academic institutions, including this one, MSOE, as well as Marquette University, the Medical College of Wisconsin, and UW-Milwaukee, and four healthcare institutions, Freighted Health, Children's Hospital, the VA Hospital, and the Blood Center of Wisconsin, all working together to focus their energies on translating scientific discoveries into new, novel, and exciting ways to better the health of us all, community-wide. And they all work in collaboration across the institutions to harness each researcher's expertise in their own given areas. We've invited the director of the National Center for Advancing Translational Science, or NCATS, in Washington, D.C. to join us today, Dr. Chris Austin. Welcome, Dr. Austin. Thank you. Welcome. As the director of NCATS, can you explain to our listeners why translational science is so important? Sure. Translation is the term that's used by doctors to describe the process by which uh, an observation that happens in a doctor's office or in a, in a laboratory is converted into an intervention that is shown to improve human health. We're all, I think, aware that there's been enormous scientific progress in the last 20 years, but the but uh, we have not seen as many treatments, new treatments or cures as we would like to come out of those remarkable discoveries. So translational science is all about how to do that better and more efficiently so that we can get more treatments to more patients more quickly. Excellent. And, and what is NCATS doing to transform the translational science process and, and really improve public health? So we view the translational science process uh, differently from everyone else. We view it as a scientific and an organizational problem. The, the process of, by which you uh, transform an observation in the lab or the clinic into an improvement in health is a very poorly understood process, which is fraught with failure, uh, currently takes about 15 years and costs over a billion dollars to wow. go from an observation to a novel drug. And we think there are many opportunities to improve the efficiency of that process. And so we partner with uh, academic investigators, such as those at the Medical College of Wisconsin, uh, other academic organizations, disease foundations, uh, biotech, pharma companies, 
to work on the well-known roadblocks that prevent this efficiency from uh, from happening. And then we uh, develop new ways to get over those roadblocks, demonstrate that they're useful in, uh, in individual uh, diseases, in projects with these partners that we have. And then once we demonstrate that there are new, better, cheaper, faster ways um, to get to a public health intervention, uh, then we disseminate that information very broadly across the, uh, the research um, ecosystem. Thank you, Dr. Austin. That was Dr. Chris Austin, Director of the National Center for Advancing Translational Science, or NCATS, in Washington, D.C., a division of the National Institutes of Health. Now, to put that into practical terms about what we're doing right here in southeast Wisconsin with scientific discovery and our research enterprise, as we call it, I'd like to welcome Dr. John Baker. Dr. John Baker received his Ph.D. in biochemistry from the University of London in 1984 and then came to the Medical College of Wisconsin for his postdoctoral training in cardiothoracic surgery. He joined the faculty of MCW in 1987 and in 1982 was appointed as adjunct faculty member in the Department of Biochemistry. In 2013, Dr. Baker received a pilot award funding his studies of intestinal microbiota and the pathogenesis of cardiovascular disease, linking the types of bacteria present in the intestines to the susceptibility and severity of heart attacks. Good morning, Dr. Baker, and thank you for taking the time to discuss your remarkable findings regarding heart disease and gut bacteria. Well, thank you for inviting me. Um, so, tell me, um, in broad terms, would it be correct in summing up your experimental conclusions by saying that the type of bacteria that in the gut significantly affects the size and severity of myocardial infarctions or heart attacks? Uh, our studies in rats have demonstrated a mechanistic link between the bacteria that live in the intestines and the severity of heart attacks. Okay, so I've got to ask you this. Where did you find the correlation between gut bacteria and intensity of severity of heart attacks? Yeah, it's an interesting question. Uh, our lab was studying the long-term effects of a radiological terrorism event on injury to the heart. Um, we had shown that radiation results in an uh, acceleration of coronary atherosclerosis and there was also uh, evidence of early heart failure. It was through this work that it became apparent that if a radiological terrorism event took place, we didn't have any way of knowing who had been exposed to radiation and who had not been exposed. So this was the stimulus for me to start thinking about a way to improve on the existing biomarker for radiation exposure. Interesting. Yeah, there were several studies in the 1950s and the 1960s uh, prompted by the development of the atomic bomb aimed at identifying specific bacteria present in the feces that were sensitive to radiation. Along with animal studies, there's also some evidence for a decrease of the bacteria E. coli in the feces of patients in the first days after undergoing radiotherapy. The changes observed in these studies on the fecal uh, microbiota levels post-exposure uh, were transient. However, in order for a biomarker to have utility as a radiation biodecimeter, a biologically significant and also a sustained signal from the microbiota needs to be present. So our challenge was to identify specific intestinal microbiota present in the feces that can act as persistent biomarkers for radiation biodins for a decrease of the bacteria E. coli in the feces of patients in the first days after undergoing radiotherapy. 
the changes observed in these studies on the fecal uh, microbiota levels post-exposure uh, were transient. However, in order for a biomarker to have utility as a radiation biodecimeter, a biologically significant and also a sustained signal from the microbiota needs to be present. So our challenge was to identify specific intestinal microbiota present in the feces that can act as persistent biomarkers for radiation biodissymmetry up to weeks after an exposure. So in essence, you kind of got this idea from a, a, um, a kind of a doomsday scenario thought and, and how we could recover from that. <laughs> yes. Um, if there was to be a radiological terrorism event, then there could be hundreds of thousands of people who would be present around the ground zero area. There would be very limited medical resources available, and we would need to determine who has been exposed to radiation and who hasn't. I think that is really important because we really need to commit resources to those people who can benefit from some intervention, and I think what we've got is a way to separate out these two populations. That's cool. Yeah. Yeah, we discovered that in response to ionizing radiation, the levels of individual bacteria in the intestines uh, increased, decreased, or remained the same. The bacteria affected by radiation provided a sustained level of reporting signals that persisted for at least uh, 21 days following exposure to radiation. As these biomarkers could be indicative of early injury to the gut, we thought their impact could extend to remote organs such as the heart. Interesting. So now let's go on to like what you're doing now in the lab. How did you take this theory and, and, and move it into the lab and what you are, and your colleagues are working on? Yeah, in our laboratory at the Medical College of Wisconsin, we are actively investing the role of intestinal microbiota in the mechanisms underlying the progression of heart disease. So is it your hope that this work will help prevent or treat heart disease uh, in the future? One in every two deaths in the United States is caused by heart disease. So despite strong mechanistic links uh, that have been established between a diet in, that's rich in lipids and the progression of heart disease, therapeutic advances have focused on reduction in either ingestion or synthesis of cholesterol and a reduction in dietary fatty acids and triglycerides. Even in the setting of aggressive high-potency statin therapy and global cardiovascular risk reduction efforts, most clinical trials reveal a significant residual cardiovascular risk with, at best, only 30% reduction in major adverse cardiovascular events. There exists a significant unmet clinical need for identifying novel therapies for the prevention and treatment of heart disease. This requires identification of additional contributory processes to cardiovascular disease progression so that mechanism-based interventions may be developed. So what has this study found? What have you, because uh, you're pretty much towards the end of your study now, it, it, it kind of wraps up towards the end of May. Yeah. What, have, what have your uh, conclusions been? We've made a transformative scientific discovery that could change the landscape for the protection and treatment of heart disease. Our finding links the type of bacteria present in the intestines and susceptibility to and the severity of heart attacks. This study is novel and important because it's the first time that anyone has shown that vancomycin, a non-absorbed 
antibiotic and Lactobacillus plantarum, a probiotic bacterium that lives in the intestines and is otherwise beneficial to health, may be managed in order to reduce the occurrence of a heart attack and the injury suffered from a heart attack. The extent of cardioprotection uh, that we see using these antibiotics and, and this specific probiotic bacterium, it's comparable to that of current pharmaceutical therapeutics for the treatment of acute myocardial infarction. So just to summarize a bit, um, the antibiotics um, suppress the leptin level, correct? Yes, that, that's, that's correct. We've shown that both the antibiotic and the, uh, the probiotic, Lactobacillus plantarum, uh, both uh, decrease the circulating levels of, the, uh, of leptin. And that, in, in theory, um, protects the heart from either heart attack or severity of heart attack, correct? Yes, yes, that's, that's correct. And we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to talk to Dr. John Baker again from the Medical College of Wisconsin and talk about his study about microbiota in the intestines of rats can be applied and translated to the human population and potentially help us uh, protect ourselves from heart attacks and the severity of heart attacks. We'll be right back. Science is real from the Big Bang to to Discover Your Radio on WMSE, and we are back with Dr. John Baker, a researcher at the Medical College of Wisconsin and the Clinical and Translational Science Institute of Southeast Wisconsin. So, Doctor, there's been a fair amount of discussion on the role of gut bacteria uh, in our digestive systems, in our immune systems, and now obviously in arterial inflammation. Uh, what is your um, theory about why your observations on the reduction of infarctic size and severity are working? Let me share some background information to help place uh, what we are doing into a more global perspective. Please. Um, signals from the intestinal microbiota um, are important for normal development and physiology. Uh, an alteration in these microbial communities in patients or animal models is associated with multiple disease states, including uh, exacerbated inflammatory bowel disease, uh, influenza pathology, diarrhea, allergy, hypertension, obesity, diabetes, cancer, and uh, what we've shown, the response to radiation. Intestinal microbiota have also been shown to promote cardiovascular disease, specifically atherosclerosis. However, a proof of concept demonstration of a mechanistic link between the composition of the intestinal microbiota and susceptibility to injury from heart attacks had not been reported and that was the major goal of our study. And that's really what came out of this pilot study from the CTSI? Yes. 
Yeah, our studies have identified one bacterium, Lactobacillus plantarum, uh, a resident of the gut that suppresses leptin production that is associated with decreased severity of myocardial infarction. Uh, treatment with vancomycin, a non-absorbed antibiotic, also suppresses leptin production and decreases severity of uh, myocardial infarction, and we've shown that in, in rats. As the intestines contain over a thousand different types of bacteria, it's highly likely that other bacteria are players and that we will likely identify other mediators associated with microbial metabolism that mediate a severity of heart attacks. Uh, the take-home message right now is that decreased leptin levels are just one of the mechanisms that explain gut microbiota-mediated reductions in severity of heart attacks. So then tell me how does pyelonecrat and the studies helping you evaluate the bacteria and the myocardial infarction um, severity? How are, you, how, how are you doing this in the lab? In our animal studies, we used uh, three groups of rats. The f first group was fed a standard diet and uh, serves as a control. The second group was treated orally with an antibiotic vancomycin in the drinking water. Treatment with the antibiotic decreased circulating levels of leptin, and this is a protein hormone that plays a key role in regulating energy intake and energy expenditure, and this resulted in small heart attacks and improved recovery of mechanical function as compared to the first group. Vancomycin reduced total bacterial numbers in the intestines and altered the abundance of specific types of bacteria as well as fungi that live in the gut. Pre-treating vancomycin fed rats with leptin before a heart attack prevented the protection produced by this antibiotic. The third group was fed a probiotic supplement that contained Lactobacillus plantarum, a bacterium that suppresses the production of leptin. The probiotic decreased circulating leptin levels, resulted in smaller heart attacks and greater recovery of mechanical function as compared to the first group. Pre-treating Lactobacillus plantarum fed rats with leptin before a heart attack prevented the protection produced by the probiotic. And the probiotic you used was just something that you could get at the local drugstore, right? It was just an over-the-counter regular probiotic that anybody could get. The probiotic that we use is indeed readily available from uh, local health food stores. Well, that's great. And now, tell me how, um, uh, or can you explain how, um, a gut bacteria influences the risk and the severity of heart attacks, and which kind of gut bacteria profile may be more threatening to heart health? Our discovery of a relationship between intestinal microbiota, uh, bacterial metabolites, and the severity of heart attacks means that for the first time we may be able to determine a person's probability of having a heart attack and then act to prevent the heart attack from ever happening. This scientific breakthrough now provides opportunities for both novel diagnostic tests and therapeutic approaches so that physicians may use these in order to prevent or treat heart attacks.
So doctor, like yours, several other studies have implicated leptin in initiating inflammation. Given that significant portion of patients with heart disease exhibit high levels of inflammation markers, would it make sense for this population to consider lowering leptin levels? Leptin is certainly one candidate molecule that needs further investigation. As we just discussed, the intestines export hundreds of microbial metabolites to the liver for processing and then release into the systemic circulation, where they may be transported to remote organs such as the heart to determine severity of a myocardial infarction. The metabolites other than leptin that are regulated by the microbiota are likely to serve as mediators of the severity of myocardial infarction. However, the identity of these additional microbial metabolites has yet to be established. We are currently working on this. Further examination of Lactobacillus plantarum, as well as other probiotics, is needed to determine their usefulness in prevention and management of chronic as well as acute cardiovascular disease. So in essence, we don't want anybody going off their statins or anything and going to the local drugstore and using probiotics as a, as a treatment yet. But talk to me about the future of your study and how you're going to translate it into humans, because I know that's already started in your process. Yes, we, we were um, very fortunate to be uh, awarded a pilot grant from our, uh, our CTSI. And essentially what we're trying to do is to reproduce uh, in humans uh, some of the important measurements that we've made in rats. So what we're doing is that we have recruited uh, patients between the age of 40 and 75 years of age who've had a heart attack. And then we're treating these patients with a probiotic they then get a rest period and then they are, are treated with a antibiotic so far we've enrolled 20 patients and we think that is going to be sufficient in order for us to perform a, a statistical analysis the patients now are approaching the end of the study and in the next few months uh, we intend to analyze the results uh, to see exactly what's going on. Do probiotics, you know, appear like naturally in food or in any of the any of our diets or, or come up, come to us any other ways? Uh, yes, they do. Um, there, even though there's a tremendous tendency now for us to use uh, processed foods in our diets, uh, there's still a lot of evidence that consumption of bacteria that are part of natural foods uh, such as uh, sauerkraut can confer health benefits. We are determining whether this specific protective bacteria can confer uh, cardiovascular benefits. And there are thousands of bacteria, so you're just studying one of them right now. Yes, there are over uh, a thousand different uh, types of bacteria that live in our intestines. We've only recently been, work, been able to work out who's exactly is living in the neighborhood, and now we're able to ask the question, well, what exactly are, are they doing? And our study is one of these studies. Well, that's great. Um, thank you once again for your time and insight, Dr. Baker. Um, we're going to take a quick break. Uh, Dr. John Baker is going to stick with us. And on the other side, we're going to be joined by Kim Murphy from Fox 6. And we're going to play a little translational trivia. You up for that? I certainly am. All right. We'll see you in a little bit. There's antimony 
arsenic, aluminum, selenium, and hydrogen, and oxygen, and nitrogen, and rhenium, and nickel, neodymium, neptunium, germanium, and iron, americium, ruthenium, uranium, europium, zirconium, rutesium, vanadium, and lanthanum, and osmium, and astatine, and radium, and gold, protactinium, and indium, and gallium, and iodine, and thorium, and thulium, and thallium. There's yttrium, ytterbium, actinium, rubidium, and boron, gadolinium, niobium, iridium, and strontium, and silicon, and silver, and samarium, and bismuth, bromine, lithium, beryllium, and barium. There's holmium and helium and hafnium and erbium and phosphorus and francium and fluorine and terbium and manganese and mercanium molybdenum and magnesium dysprosium and scandium and cerium and cesium and lead praseodymium and platinum plutonium palladium promethium potassium polonium and tantalum technetium titanium tellurium and cadmium and calcium and chromium and curium. There's sulfur, californium, and fermium, berkelium, and also mendelevium, einsteinium, nobelium, and argon, kryptonium, radon, xenon, zinc, and rhodium, and chlorine, carbon, cobalt, copper, tungsten, tin, and sodium. These are the only ones of which the news has come to Harvard. And there may be many others, but they haven't been discovered. Now let's have some fun. Joining us today on the phone is Fox 6 Wake Up Anchor, Kim Murphy. Hello, Kim. Hey there, David. So, Kim, this is the part of our show where we play translational trivia. Are you up for it? As I'll ever be. All right, then. I'll ask you mm -hmm. three questions, and you only have to get two of them right to win. Today, you'll be playing on behalf of one of our Facebook friends, Julio Guerrero of Milwaukee, who will win a CTS prize pack that includes a CTSI pen, notebook coaster, and an 8-gig flash drive. Are you ready for our first question? It is multiple okay. choice. All right, question one. What is the difference between a prebiotic and a probiotic? Is it A, prebiotics are baby bacteria and probiotics are adult bacteria? B, prebiotics are what probiotics eat for lunch? Or C, prebiotics gave Steve Austin his powers in The Six Million Dollar Man and probiotics took it away? What's your answer? Okay, it's not C because... Steve Austin was bionic, not biotic, so it's not C. Prebiotic. All right, I'm going to go with A. Prebiotics are baby bacteria and probiotics are adult bacteria? Yes. Okay, well, that is not the answer. What? Actually, prebiotics are what probiotics eat for lunch. You are kidding me. Nope, prebiotics feed probiotics. They help them do their job even better. Oh, my God, okay. Okay, well, you got two more chances to win for Julio here, all right? Okay. Okay. And th this shouldn't be too bad. Okay, the next one is a, a, a true or false question. It's called science okay. or fiction. So your answer should be science or fiction. Okay. All right, here's the question. 90% of cells in our body are microbial, while only 10% are human. So we are more microbial than mammal. Science or fiction? Because I only have, I've got to get these last two right, I'm going to make sure that they're right, so I'm going to ask the doctor for help. Do you think that the question that's being proposed, does it sound a little preposterous? Because some things that sound really off the wall can actually be true. Oh, that's a good hint. So is it science or fiction? 90% of cells in our body science. are microbial. You science? got that one right. <laughs> okay, here's your last question for the prize. Which actress was the first spokesperson for the very first scoopable probiotic introduced to the U.S. market back in 2006? 
Scoopable. Is that supposed to be a, a clue? That's supposed to be a clue. Okay, Dr. Scoopable. Baker, you can tell her what scoopable means. Uh, Doctor? Uh, something that you essentially eat with a, a spoon, and this particular person has appeared on, I would say, quite a few um, TV adverts where you see this person extolling the virtues of consuming a particular yogurt, and she eats it with Oh a my spoon. gosh, I can see it's, 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 oh my gosh, like I know the commercial, but I can't remember the actress. And you're in TV. Oh, 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 um, Jamie Lee Curtis. You win. <laughs> All right, excellent. Now, Julio Guerrero of Milwaukee, one of our Facebook friends uh, to CTSI, has won a CTS prize pack. Thank you so much, Kim, for playing along. Thank you. That was tough. Well, tough, but I hope fun. It was fun and informative. I did learn a lot. Okay. Well, that's what the whole point of Discovery Radio is, so people learn a little bit something. Thank uh, you so much, and thank you, Doctor, for the help. Uh, you're welcome. One last calendar item before we leave you. You are invited to see the CTSI in action at our Science Cafe. In an informal public forum, the community can talk right to translation scientists about current scientific and medical issues that impact on our community and society. Our next one is Tuesday, June 10th at the Downtown Public Library at 6 p.m. We'll be talking about living well while coping with asthma. Do join us. It's always a great conversation, and there are even refreshments on hand for you to enjoy. I'd like to thank our guests today, Dr. John Baker from the Medical College of Wisconsin, Dr. Chris Austin, Director of the National Center for Advancing Translational Science, and Fox 6 anchor Kim Murphy for playing along. Next time, we'll talk with Dr. Zeno Franco and find out how smartphone technology could be helping our returning vets cope with post-traumatic stress disorder, or PTSD. Until then, Discovery Radio is produced by the Clinical and Translational Science Institute of Southeast Wisconsin in collaboration with WMSE Radio. The show is engineered by Tom Crawford, with special thanks to Sandy Everts and Dr. Herman Vietz of MSOE, along with Drs. Carlos De La Pena and Reza Shakir. If you would like to play along, like our Facebook page at facebook.com backslash CTSI1. If there's a question bothering your brain that you think you know how to explain,